Hey, Deserving Listeners, today I'm going to answer patron emails, and I'm going to try to go as fast as I can because I have so many emails that are backlogged here. This first email is from Confused Upper Tier Patron in California. They write, I have listened to your episode on jealousy, and I would truly love to learn more on your take on morbid jealousy. I have also heard this under the name of Othello Syndrome and Pathological Jealousy. I believe there is a larger percentage of society dealing with this issue and that it is not often spoken about due to the immense amount of shame associated for both partners in their relationship. I have spent hours reading about other people's experience with morbid jealousy, and it sounds exactly like what my husband and I are going through. End of email. So yeah, uh, very briefly, because you could listen to my full episodes on jealousy, I talk about it often, but... Uh, I like the term delusional jealousy because that fits it better. Yeah, you're you're referring to it, upper tier patron in California, morbid jealousy, and as you, as you said, it's, it can also be called Othello syndrome or pathological jealousy. To me, it the best term is delusional jealousy because morbid jealousy is is just kind of an odd term, right? And not not everyone understands the full uh, meaning of morbid jealousy. I guess it sounds more deathly or something, morbid jealousy, but really it's delusional jealousy. So what's the definition of delusional jealousy? Well, it's being massively preoccupied with your partner being unfaithful, you know, just massively preoccupied with your partner cheating on you, even though there's no indication of cheating or very, very circumstantial evidence, you know, like they came home late from work or something. So uh, the the key here is that there's perhaps normal jealousy or non-delusional jealousy, like if you're at a wedding reception and your husband is dancing with another woman and he seems to be a little handsy or something. Like it's normal to get jealous in that situation. Well, delusional jealousy or morbid jealousy is when there's no reason to be jealous and the jealous individual is uh, not only uh, jealous of basically nothing, but they are very preoccupied with it. So there are two different types. Uh, according, so there's no diagnosis for delusional jealousy. There, it's a research topic, but it's not very robust, and, and the the lingo is not very locked down. But according to me. The, the two different types are delusional and personality disorder. So with delusional, it, it's basically a subtype of, a, of delusional disorder or perhaps even schizophrenia. But probably if, if, that's, if they don't suffer from schizophrenia, then in all likelihood we would utilize the term delusional disorder and we would um, say it's you know jealousy type. So this person has basically, you know, the conceptualization of a person with delusional disorder is that it's considered to be a problem with the brain, like either they were genetically born this way or they had some sort of injury or medication that is causing them to have a dysfunction of the brain and delusions are manifesting and they are, for whatever reason, just manifesting in jealousy. The other type of delusional jealousy is personality disorder type. This is according to my language. So if you have delusional personality disorder, borderline, these sorts of disorders will create quote-unquote delusions. They're not classic delusions, but they are paranoid thinking. And people with borderline personality disorder or delusional personality disorder will have as a part of their personality um, and caused by traumas growing up. So let me just take borderline, for example. because Well, actually, I'm going to talk about delusional personality disorder and borderline. So you take a, someone early in life who was mistreated, abused, and their let's say that their uh, father is cheating on their mother. So at the age of seven years old, you have been feeling abandoned by your dad. You know, maybe your dad doesn't come home from work, or maybe there's even a separation or something. And then you learn that your dad has a whole other family, that he has a whole other, uh, you know, girlfriend with two other kids. And at the age of seven, it kind of locks in this trauma of being abandoned, being left alone, being very scared, and it being very much connected to this secret life that your father is having. 
Well, uh, delusional personality disorder and borderline personality disorder can emerge from that background. So in this situation, we would call it a psychological effect of trauma and thus perhaps changeable. You know, when you have delusional disorder, psychotherapy doesn't usually work. When you have schizophrenia, psychotherapy can't take away your delusions. It can help a little bit to mitigate some of the stress that might cause the delusions, but there's no amount of psychotherapy alone that is going to, you know, really meaningfully mitigate one's uh, symptoms of delusions. But if you have borderline personality disorder or delusional personality disorder, then psychotherapy can help. So, sorry, some of you clinicians are probably throwing your phones at the wall. Um, there is no such thing as delusional personality disorder. What I'm meaning to say is paranoid personality disorder. Maybe some of you knew that. Um, I'm guessing a lot of you lay people didn't pick up on that. So there's no such thing as delusional personality disorder. What I meant was paranoid personality disorder. Paranoid personality disorder is what I've been talking about. So paranoid, you can develop paranoid personality disorder from the background that I said, and it can manifest in what we would call delusional jealousy or, or morbid jealousy. So there are two different types here as well, depending on whether or not you have insight or not. And we call this ego dystonic or ego syntonic. Essentially, uh, very briefly, some people with morbid or delusional jealousy will know that there's something wrong with them. They'll just be like, yeah, I am ab- I'm obsessively preoccupied with the fact that my husband is going to cheat on me and I know that it's not right, but I can't stop thinking about it. So that we call ego dystonic, meaning that the symptom or the experience is dystonic, meaning it's not of your own self. You feel like it's outside of yourself. So if if you're so for for example for me, I am I have an anxiety disorder about like needles and being going to the hospital and this kind of thing. But I consider the anxiety to be outside of myself. It's inside of me, but it is not of me. I feel like I can look at that anxiety and say, that anxiety doesn't make any sense. It's irrational that, that I have that anxiety. It doesn't take away the anxiety, but it, it, I, I recognize it as excessive and I recognize it as not part of my true self. There are uh, egocentonic experiences where people don't have insight. So you would talk to a delusionally jealous person who who has no insight, and they'd be like, well, of course I am preoccupied with my husband cheating on me because look at his behavior, even though an objective observer would say there's no reason to believe that your husband is cheating on you. So behavior that we see with uh, delusional jealous people is, again, they're very jealous and very worried about their partner being with other people. They will often interrogate their partner uh, in, in many different areas. They might go through their things. They might go through their phone, their emails, etc. There might be intimate partner violence. There might be behavior to isolate your partner or control your partner. There might be suicidal gestures to try to control your partner. Things like, well, if you uh, hang out with your friends tonight, I might kill myself tonight, that kind of thing. There might, there probably is going to be substance abuse because delusionally jealous people are not well and they are not happy individuals. And when people aren't happy, then we almost always turn to substances to mitigate those feelings. They can often be depressed and they can also have child abuse as a way of trying to get back at their partner. It's like if, you know, if, if you're going to go out with your friends, then I'm going to beat our kids, that kind of thing. By the way, if you are a victim, of violence in this way, you want to go to thehotline.org. Um, it's not the end-all, be-all place, but it's a good jumping-off point in terms of getting help, thehotline.org online. So that's my talk on delusional jealousy. Uh, to summarize or to conclude, I'll say that, you know, uh, per- patron from California, you're saying that you're experiencing and I'm really sorry you're going through that. I don't know. You didn't say which side. I don't you didn't say if you're the jealous person or your partner is. And you also say that you think it's a bigger issue in society because of shame. Absolutely. Um there is a lot of jealousy and delusional jealousy going on in the world that uh, is um hidden because of shame. Absolutely. Um it's upsetting that the victims of this feel so ashamed that they can't come forward about it. That's that's not fair at all, right? So we need to change that about our society. Um, but the, the, thing, the, the thing that I'll say is, is that 
when I've talked about jealousy in the past, and I often will, particularly in the context of domestic violence, intimate partner violence, it doesn't really change things. You know, there's not this other category. Unless you're talking about someone who suffers from a delusional disorder, then then we because I don't usually talk about that. I don't usually talk about people suffering from delusions, actual delusions. Then, um, if we're not, unless we're talking about that, then everything I've been, everything I've said about jealousy up until this point still applies. Uh, when people, like I said, have, there's a subset of people who have delusional disorder that it emerges from a personality disorder. And that personality disorder emerges from early childhood trauma. So it's just a matter of degree. So some, what, you know, you might have a, a husband who, it's experienced enough mistreatment growing up that he's developed a pretty hefty case of borderline and uh, an associated symptom of the borderline is very preoccupied with jealousy and with your partner cheating and engaging in controlling behavior and this kind of thing. And we might characterize that as morbid jealousy, but it, it doesn't, it's not somehow this whole separate category of jealousy. It's just a matter of degree, right? Anyway, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from Upper Tier Patron Junie. She writes, Would you be able to do an episode on disengaged families the way you've done for enmeshed families? Could you include what causes parents in disengaged families to parent the way that they do? Uh, end of email. Yeah, so in brief, disengaged families are, they tend to be very independent individuals in the family. They don't notice each other's emotional state. Uh, so this is in contrast to enmeshed families where there's a lot of interdependence and a lot of noticing each other. Listen to my episodes on enmeshment. So disengaged families, the individuals tend to be very independent, if not pathologically independent, meaning that they don't they don't turn to anyone for help or at least to each other. They don't notice each other's emotional state. So in an, in a disengaged family, you could have someone who's very sad or very hurt or even very happy, and the, the other family members, they just won't even notice, or they'll, it'll, be, it'll take a lot to notice each other's emotional state. Whereas enmeshed families, they will notice each other within half a second. Parents tend to parent very passively. They tend to, well, not always, but they tend to parent from afar, from a cold place, if that makes any sense. Um, disengaged families can be loving or they can be cold. So there's two types of disengaged families, or maybe three types off the top of my head. So you can have a disengaged family where everyone in the family will purport that the family is very loving. They'll be like, oh, yeah, we're very loving. We hug each other. We say we love each other, and it's all good. So you can have a disengaged slash loving slash safe family in a sense. You can have a disengaged cold family where you ask people, they're like, ah, we don't really, we're not really involved in each other's lives. And yeah, my dad's really cold, that kind of thing. You can have another type of disengaged family where there's actual fighting going on, but that's not usually the case. Essentially, disengagement, so enmeshment and disengagement are maladaptive coping styles to a problem. Uh, and the problem almost always is fear of being alone, fear of not getting your attachment needs met. And so when you have a family, and everyone fears this, every family worries about not being able to meet each other's needs or not individually being able to get your own needs met attachment-wise. What? How do you cope with that fear? Well, if if you come from a history of pathology, then you're going to develop a pathological coping style. And one of them for diseng for enmeshed families, their solution to that problem is to be over involved and to control each other subtly through guilt trips and this kind of thing, and to and to not develop your own individual voice because when you have an individual individual voice in an enmeshed family, it's perceived as the possibility of the family flying apart. That's very scary. To the disengaged family, they developed a coping style of distance, of saying like, well, it's better for us to be distant because if we get involved in each other's lives, then one, we might go into conflict and then we'll fly apart for good, or we we won't actually meet each other's needs and that'll be very hurtful. So it's better to kind of keep our distance from each other because, you know, let's just all agree that we can't really depend on each other. And so we can get a little bit of closeness. We can preserve our closeness because we avoid getting in fights, but we don't get the optimal closeness because that really isn't possible given our family, that kind of thing. Um, 
So disengaged families, they, they tend to, if they develop close relationships, they tend to be with people outside of the family. So you might have kids in a disengaged family with very good best friends or very close-knit uh, clique or a very close-knit uh, romantic partner. Because Why would this be? Well, if you're a 15-year-old girl in a disengaged family, well, you've had 15 years of feeling that disengagement and that lack of vulnerability and that lack of getting your needs met. And so you will perhaps look for that closeness outside of the family. And when you have your first romantic relationship, you might be like, oh, my God, I'm finally getting my attachment needs met. And your relationships romantically in high school can perhaps be very intense for that reason. Or your friendships can be very intense because you're not getting your attachment needs met through your family. And so you pour all of it into these outside relationships or maybe like a teacher or a mentor or something. Uh, disengaged families, the individuals tend not to know much about each other. And uh, sometimes they can have a, a, a narrative that is that they come from a very good family. So, And enmeshed families can be that way too. So uh, even though when we look into it, the, there was a lot of missed opportunities to meet each other's needs. Um, also, when people in disengaged families have a need, they don't turn towards each other. So if you have uh, – if you're a teenager – and you were bullied at school and you're in a disengaged family, you're not very likely to actually tell your parents about it. You're more likely to go to your friends or something. Whereas if you're in a healthy family or an enmeshed family and you're bullied at school, then you're very likely to tell your parents about it because that's, that's your pattern. All right. So to answer your other question, Junie, in terms of what causes disengagement to happen, well, in a nutshell – Parents who create disengaged families, they came from disengaged families as children, and they were usually neglected emotionally. Um, their their parents usually were pretty hands off when it came to parents when it came to parenting their kids. Uh, complaints that you will hear from people in disengaged families, off the top of my head, is you will hear like. Uh, it, so so sometimes disengaged families, they won't complain at all because they're like, our family's great because they never fight. But uh, they've submerged the fact that they don't – they're not getting their needs met anyway. But if you do hear complaints, you will hear things like, yeah, we're not very supportive in our family. Yeah, you know, my dad, my mom, they don't really respond. When I reach out to them, they don't really seem to care. There can be underlying resentments that aren't ever communicated. There can be a lack of events. So in disengaged families, you'll find that they don't have birthday parties together, or if they do, they're, they're kind of um, reluctantly attended. <laughs> um, people in uh, disengaged families tend to be more on the avoidant attachment spectrum or the narcissistic spectrum for a lot of reasons, of which you can listen to my deep dives on those two things. Um, the cure for disengaged families is for everyone to recognize their needs for closeness um, and to be vulnerable with other people and to turn towards each other. This is probably the biggest thing you can do if you're if you come from a disengaged family is the next time you go through a difficult thing, even if it's small, like your boss yells at you, turn towards your family and say, oh, my God, my boss yelled at me because when you do this, uh, you're your family will go like, oh, because the, the thing, the, the myth that often pervades a disengaged family is that I'm the only one who wants closeness and everyone else doesn't. There's the, usually that assumption of just like, I want more closeness. I want more support. But, you know, the rest of my family, they're not into it. Well, that's a false assumption because in, in all likelihood, because everyone needs closeness and everyone needs support particularly from one's family. And so if you get the ball rolling and you are vulnerable and you create, you break the rule of disengagement, other people will likely follow. Uh, I've talked about how difficult it is to change enmeshment because once an enmeshed pattern is solidified, it is very hard to turn around. Disengagement, on the other hand, is much easier to change in my experience. I've treated disengaged relationships and there's so much... Uh, potential because once you are vulnerable 
And once you reach out to other people, other people will be like, oh, my God, finally some closeness. Um, you know, and, and people take to it pretty well. Now, it may take some doing, and there's usually negative uh, feedback uh, responses like uh, attempts to push back into the disengagement. Because like I said, uh, disengaged families have a, have a worry that if you get closer, you're going to get into conflict and you'll fly apart. But you can alleviate that and you can push past it. All right, let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. Uh, Junie, upper tier patron, uh, Junie had more questions. She asked, could you do an episode on ASMR? I only discovered ASMR a couple years ago, and it was a light bulb moment. Ever since I was a kid, I got the tingles from certain sounds and sought them out. I thought it was weird, but I discovered it was ASMR, and I realized I wasn't alone. I find it very relaxing and therapeutic. When I can't sleep, I put on a page turning, I put on a page turning video on YouTube and it helps me fall asleep and it helps soothe me when I'm stressed. End of email. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm not a researcher in this area. Um, and I'm not a brain scientist because that's really the sort of profession I would need to be in to be able to speak intelligently about it. My dog is barking. Um, but yeah, it's a thing. And if you know, a certain percentage, I don't know how many, but you know, pretty good minority of, of people will report that there are certain sounds. It's usually like whispering or rustling leaves or like you say, page turning that will uh, either soothe and or send a shiver down one's back. Some people, it can be a sexual thing, but for most people, it's just a relaxing thing. It, it's like the sounds go straight to their nervous system and, and help them to relax. The, I don't have ASMR, but the only thing I can really relate to it is there are certain songs and certain chord progressions that will put a, a tingle up my spine. There are certain, um, when, when I'm either writing a song or when I'm listening to a song that I love, there are certain uh, turns of chord progressions that will just, and even me just thinking about it right now sends a shiver up my spine. There's this this physical feeling. So I think that you know it's not uncommon for humans to manifest audio and even visual stimuli into a odd <laughs> nervous uh, system experience. Um, you know, we're, we're very reactive to our environment and that's one of the ways. So yeah, it should be normalized. It's fine. I, I, if, if I have one hot take on it, it's that usually ASMR is considered to be some sort of sexual thing. And like I said, it can be, but it often is not it. Um, and it's usually made fun of like, Oh, ASMR, someone's going to have an orgasm or something. And Certainly, again, there's something wrong with that, and that can happen. But there's plenty of people with ASMR that it just it just relaxes them. It's just a relaxing thing. When I go to bed, I listen to a um, sound generator, you know, a white noise generator, and and that really helps me to relax. And yeah, you know, we don't have to stigmatize any of it. All right, uh, I'm a rapid fire next email. All right, this next email is from anonymous patron. She writes. After listening to your podcast about Bowenian theory and differentiation, I started thinking that high differentiation and secure adult attachment style sound an awful lot alike. Are they basically the same thing or are they are there some differences to the two concepts? I wondered if increasing your level of differentiation is more or less the same as earned security and attachment. I also wondered if insecure attachment might place some kind of limit on the baseline level of differentiation you are able to achieve in adulthood. Can you speak to how they are similar, different, or related to each other? End of email. I love questions like this because this is evidence that you're listening to what I'm saying. For you to have such a complicated, integrated understanding of Bowenian theory, differentiation, and attachment, and to start making those connections uh, makes my day. So that's uh, great. I, um, I and I suspect you're not a clinician from the way you're asking the question. So it's, it's just fantastic that there's these lay people walking around understanding differentiation and attachment <laughs> because of listening to the podcast. I don't know if that's the case here, but if it is, it's just very gratifying to me. Uh, yeah, this is a, a, an excellent question. 
So you're asking, is differentiation the same as secure attachment style? Now, because I'm trying to do rapid fire, I'm not going to do a full deep dive on this. Listen to you know the episodes on Bowen and the episodes on attachment style, but um, they're not the same thing. But they're they are very related. They're very correlated. You know, differentiation is a very specific uh, condition that's more related to how you relate to other people and how you relate to your own emotions and your own and your own thought processes. That's a very brief way of saying it. Attachment style is similar, but is much more related to how you trust other people, essentially, and how you uh, neurologically manifest your own attachment needs with other people. Um, so, for example, you could have a securely attached person who isn't that differentiated. Being securely attached doesn't mean you don't have issues, by the way. <laughs> there are a lot of secure a lot of people who we had characterized as mostly secure attached who would lack differentiation or who would have issues. Um, you know, being securely attached and having earned security by no means means that your life is without issue. Whereas being highly differentiated definitely means that your life is likely going pretty well. Now, if you have secure adult attachment style, your life is very much likely to be going well as well. That's how these things are correlated. You also said, you know, it is increasing your level of differentiation more or less the same as earned security? Kind of. So you could be, uh, you could have an insecure attachment style and increase your, le- so increasing your level of differentiation can involve uh, a lot of things that don't depend on relating to other people. You can increase your level of differentiation by by being very mindful of how your mind works and by having a certain practice that is uh, not dependent on how other people are relating to you. Whereas earned security can only be done, generally speaking, in relation to other people. Now, you can increase your level of differentiation in relation to other people, but uh, there are plenty of people who have earned security, and they don't know that's what they're they're doing. There's not a lot of people who, um, you know, have er- earned differentiation level without having some consciousness of the fact that they're putting some effort into it. Anyway, some people might disagree with me, but that's my answer to that. Um, also, you say uh, you wonder if insecure attachment might place some kind of limit on the baseline level of differentiation you are able to achieve in adulthood. Yeah, so they're correlated. So if if you are undifferentiated, then it's going to be hard to have earned security. It's going to be hard to have secure attachment style. Conversely, if you have insecure attachment style as a result of attachment disruptions early in life, it's going to be hard to develop a highly differentiated self. But it's not impossible, like I said. Anyway, rapid fire, next question. All right, this next email is from Anonymous Patron. She writes, I've heard you speak on here about preoccupied and avoidant attachment as if person can be A or B. But I find I relate to aspects of both attachment styles in my relationships. For me, I notice a pattern of desperately wanting to be close to someone when I'm single and worrying almost constantly about the state of the relationship itself. Yet once the relationship begins to progress to a meaningful place, it's almost like a switch turns off within me and I detach emotionally from my partner. I've been, cold, I've been told countless times by past partners that I'm extremely hot and cold in, in that way and it hurts them. Is this an example of a different type of attachment or some amalgamation of the two? End of email. Yeah, I want to be clear. So I try not to talk about them like it's A or B because it isn't A or B. Uh, for many people, they will have both. Um, the, the way to, I always say, the way to think about this is attachment styles are just general ways of dealing with attachment worry. So we all have worries of attachment being uh, not provided. We all have worries that our spouse is going to leave us. We all have worries that our friends secretly hate us. We all have worries as children that our parents aren't going to be there for us. All of us have worries. And when you're securely attached and you're given enough examples to believe that people will be there for you, you manage that worry in a functional way by reaching out to them, by reaching out to other people in a functional manner. 
when you are as a child being mistreated, then you don't really trust other people. So you have to have some way of dealing with that, some way of accounting for that. And so one general way we call preoccupied, that's where you lean into relationships and you chase people. The other way is avoidant, where you run away from relationships, you give up on relationships. And then we have disorganized, where you never develop actually a way of coping because it, the situation was so terrifying when you were a child that there was really no uh, habitual answer to the question of, of, of being, um, a, you know, not given your attachment needs. Having said that, people can develop different attachment uh, reactivity given different situations. So uh, some, but the key is, is that uh, it's just a reaction to attachment worry, right? So for, you could imagine a, a person saying like, well, with friendships, I chase people, but with romantic people, I distance myself. Or when I'm in the beginning of a relationship, I chase people. And then later on, my, you know, so for you, anonymous patron, it's possible, I don't know without talking to you, but it sounds like you are attachment insecure and you were mistreated growing up in some respect so that you don't trust other people fully. And so in the beginning, you, for whatever reason, your, your habit, your habitual style of coping with the worries of losing your partner while you're dating is the chase. And then for whatever reason, once the relationship is somewhat stable, your way of coping with the worries of your partner leaving you is to avoid, is to turn yourself off from them. Now, I would suspect that there's some historical reason for that, like maybe, uh, I don't know, I just can imagine like your first romantic relationship having some sort of circumstance that could have locked that in. And or when you were two, three years old, maybe you had one parent that you needed to chase and another parent that you needed to avoid. Or maybe your parents were so erratic that sometimes it was good to chase and sometimes it was good to avoid. So I want to be clear to everyone because I get this question a lot. So please listen <laughs> that there are many people who have what we would call mixed attachment style type where they are part avoidant and part um, preoccupied. The other thing to know is that in my experience, no one fits neatly into any of the four categories. There are seven and a half billion people on the planet. What's the chance that everyone fits neatly into four categories of secure, avoidant, preoccupied, and disorganized? For example, Bob, my co-host Bob on the podcast, he will, he will, after you know, lots of discussions, we've landed collaboratively on the conceptualization that he both has disorganized and preoccupied uh, styles, but he also possesses some secure style. So he's there are times when he has all three, three of four. Um, for me, I have mostly secure, but I have definite avoidant tendencies, and I have some preoccupied tendencies. So I have three. I don't have any disorganized tendencies, but I could point towards moments in my life where I exhibited disorganized. So the, it's not a, it's not like a blood test where someone has like you know O positive blood. It's a a general way of categorizing general ways of coping with attachment worry. So no one is one or the is just one thing. Now some people are very quintessential preoccupied or very quintessential secure, that kind of thing. But I bet you anything, if you drilled down on things, you would discover that at times they exhibit these other things. Because remember, it's just a way of coping with a problem. It's like uh, you know, what's a common problem that people have? Well, let's say that you you experience road rage on the on the road someone you know you change lanes and someone behind you gets real angry and they pull up beside you and they start flipping you off well i'm guessing that you have a general way of coping with that situation some people have a style where they just ignore some people have a style where they flip off as well some people have a style where they call the police some people have a style where they get really aggressive or whatever. You know, there's a general style that you've probably developed over the years about how you deal with some road rage a-hole on the freeway. But it's it's not like you do that every time. And you can certainly see people who cope with it uh, in a variety of ways, depending on the situation. You know, if it's a scary looking uh, brute in the car, then you have one way of dealing with it. Whereas if it's some meek woman in the car, then maybe you have a different style of, of dealing with it. And I'm guessing actually, now that I think about it, it's probably really true for a lot of us. So 
you have a general style of dealing with road raging people on the road, but you might have some variability depending on the circumstance. Well, it's the same with attachment. Um, so just know that, please, that there's no blood test for attachment. And when it comes to attachment analysis of an individual, as many of you are doing to yourself, which I highly recommend, the analysis is in the details, not in the categorization. So to say like, oh, I'm avoiding attachment style, that says something, but not a lot. You really have to provide more detail about what that means. And when we start giving more detail, then we start seeing more nuance and we start saying like, huh, maybe there's some preoccupied. Now, the other thing I'll say here is that a lot of preoccupied people will say this, they'll say, you know, there are times when I'm just like very afraid and I chase and I, you know, are, you know, very, you know, preoccupied and anxious about losing my partner and I'm you know, very focused on my partner. And then there are other times where I just completely turn off, like what this anonymous patron is saying. Well, I wouldn't characterize the turning off points as necessarily avoiding attachment because every preoccupied person has a limit where they've reached their limit. And it's so overwhelming, the anxiety, for whatever reason, that they will turn off. It's not uncommon to find someone who is preoccupied attachment at some point to say like, you know what, I give up on relationships. And they might even do it. Say they give up on relationships for, you know, six months. Well, in that instant, they might say, well, I'm, a, I'm avoidant attachment style. And it's like, no, you've, you're, you're preoccupied. And if you've reached your limit, and as an extreme measure, you're trying to turn yourself off. But generally speaking, we would characterize that as preoccupied. But, you know, everyone can decide the label that they want to put. Again, the the point of all this is not the label, but how we can set. We have to have at least some rational conceptualization of attachment reactivity. Once we understand that, whatever label we put to it, then we have a way of curing it. So, for example, anonymous patron. It sounds like it sounds like you're generally attachment insecure. So, in the beginning. You say you are constantly worried in the beginning of the relationship. Well, it's probably because you have yet to fully heal from attachment injuries growing up. And then when you get uh, to some stable place in the relationship, you turn off, probably because neurologically you are deathly afraid of being rejected or hurt or something. And so uh, the cure is... Um, not necessarily what label we put to it, but to have corrective attachment experiences so that your body in the beginning of a relationship isn't afraid of losing someone as much and your body after establishing a stable relationship isn't worried as much and thus you'll have attenuated responses of preoccupation in the beginning and attenuated responses of disengagement when the relationship becomes more stable. Okay, rapid fire, next email. Okay, so this next anonymous patron, they have a lot of questions about obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. So a lot of people are familiar with OCD or obsessive-compulsive disorder. Uh, It's not well understood by the general public because they tend to use OCD as a label for just being mildly perfectionistic or mildly clean or something. But um, And listen to my past episodes on OCD about that. But this anonymous patron, they want to know about obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. Um, so the, they're asking, you know, what, what makes this a personality disorder? Well, the difference between OCD and OCPD, you know, obsessive compulsive personality disorder, is that usually with people with obsessive compulsive disorder, what we're looking at is someone that sometimes under, usually understands that their obsessions are excessive. And generally speaking, people with obsessive compulsive personality disorder do not understand. They don't have insight into the fact that um, their issues are not rational. There's a long discussion here, and there's there's no way if you if you've never treated obsessive compulsive disorder or obsessive compulsive personality disorder, there's no way that I'm going to be be able to download the nuances into your head, especially in this rapid fire uh, episode. But generally speaking, when so classic OCD is someone who is throughout the day almost constantly obsessing on different things that are worrisome to them, like 
um, you know, they're at work and they're like, what if someone breaks into my house? Or what if, what if someone breaks into my phone and finds that I looked at pornography and I'm going to get fired from my job? Or what if, um, I got germs on my hands and, uh, or what, what if the restaurant isn't very clean and somehow there's bacteria and I end up getting meningitis and my, you know, I die. So those are the you know kinds of typical obsessions that people have, and then uh, compulsions develop in response to those obsessions. Compulsions like compulsive hand washing, or compulsive checking of the stove at home to make sure it's not on, or compulsive checking to make sure that your food is clean. These these kinds of things. So um, there's a lot of different manifestations of obsessions and compulsions, but that's the general thing. Now, with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, the symptoms tend to be not as classic like that. They can be, but they, they tend to be more pervasive throughout your, the way you see the world. So someone with OCD, when they're medicated or when they learn about OCD, people with OCD usually will say, I have this problem called OCD that is not rational. People with obsessive compulsive personality disorder, it usually takes them a long time to discover that the way they see the world is not rational. Essentially, the differences between OCD and the personality disorder is the personality disorder is pervasive throughout the personality. It is the way one sees reality. Whereas someone with OCD, like someone with OCD could have never had an anxiety disorder or an obsessive compulsive disorder growing up. And then at the age of 20, boom, they have OCD. So they have memories of prior to their OCD where they treated the world differently. Someone with obsessive compulsive personality disorder probably had that personality since they were as long as they can remember. They developed it in relation to um, some sort of trauma growing up. Personality disorders are, tend to be relational traumas growing up. And, you know, ongoing relational traumas early in life. Um, essentially, it is a schema of how one sees the world that um, and also people with obsessive compulsive uh, personality disorder tend to be clean, but not anxiously clean. So people with OCD, they're very afraid. You know, in fact, OCD used to be in the anxiety chapter. People with obsessive compulsive personality disorder. They can be obsessive and impulsive and very perfectionistic, but they might not necessarily have anxiety related to it. It's not necessarily anxiety related. They just consider it like, well, this is this is the rational way to live. That's a very brief way of, of explaining it. So you also ask, anonymous patron, is it can OCPD be helpful to workplace success? It can be. You know, if you're very perfectionistic and very particular and, and very detail oriented because of one's obsessive compulsive personality disorder. It can help with workplace success, sure, but it could also really be deleterious, so it's hard to know. Um, what? Why does it cause relationship issues? Well, it might not, but certainly it can because your partner might think of you as – so it's not uncommon for someone with obsessive compulsive personality disorder to impose their obsessive ways on their partners. Um, cleanliness in the home or you know being very particular about certain details they will often impose them on their partner and so if your partner's not up for that that can you know that can be very hurtful um, you ask why do we talk so much about narcissistic personality or borderline personality disorder but not obsessive compulsive personality disorder or avoidant personality disorder you know so I, I don't know the answer to that question, honestly. It's it's kind of weird. There are nine personality disorders in the DSM, um, and avoidant personality disorder is uh, statistically probably more prevalent than any other personality disorder. Um, and yet we almost never hear talk about avoidant personality disorder. We almost never hear talk about obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. In fact, I would venture to say if you polled clinicians uh, around the world – maybe just if we just took it to the United States, to have them, and if I said, is obsessive compulsive personality disorder a thing in the DSM? I would venture to say half of clinicians would say they didn't know. <laughs> um, there, there are many clinicians who um, at the, uh, they might not even know it exists, or, or at the very least, they have no knowledge of what obsessive compulsive personality disorder is, or even avoid a personality disorder. 
And yet most clinicians at least have a somewhat slight understanding of narcissism and borderline. I don't know why. Uh, you know, there's trends. In the past, passive aggressive personality disorder was talked about clinically um, often, and borderline wasn't even introduced into the DSM until much later. And so, if I remember my history right, so things just culturally change over time. And right now, we're seeing a resurgence in narcissistic personality disorder. In the 90s, when I first became a therapist, I don't remember anyone talking about narcissistic personality disorder in the public discourse. I, I don't remember anyone talking about any personality disorders in the public discourse. But now, pretty much everyone probably at least un, has heard the phrase narcissistic personality disorder. Why is that? You know, culture, weird thing. Uh, now, uh, I think on one level, if I was to speculate, there's a lot of talk about people being narcissistic because of social media. And there's this temptation to pathologize all of that. And so I, th I think that there's that reason. I think that certain politicians will create some awareness of narcissism. And with borderline, I think that the reason why it gets talked about a lot is because a lot of clinicians over the years have equated borderline with difficult client. So if you have a difficult client who is accusatory or who is very much disliking the way that you are providing your treatment to them, then a lot of clinicians will just assume that person has borderline. And so I think that notion of like someone who is being annoying or someone who is overly emotional and accusatory or something, it, it kind of bled into the general public of like, oh, that person's borderline. Because a lot of clinicians misunderstand what borderline is. So I could go into more detail on, the, on that culture, but I think that's my speculation on that. Um, to be clear, borderline clients um, can be difficult, but they also can be not difficult. There's a wide variety of borderline people. Let's see. You also asked, does, you know, does obsessive compulsive personality disorder involve similar impairments with self and identity as in other personality disorders? Yes. All personality disorders have massive impairments in a sense of self. Um, be, because now whether or not it's like endemic to the personality disorders, like, you know, borderline, it's endemic to the personality disorder that, that they don't have a sense of themselves um, or just a, an auxiliary uh, symptom from the sheer fact that they were relationally traumatized when they were young and they didn't have a chance to develop a sense of self. Listen to all my episodes on sense of self for more information on that. Lastly, how is this order treated and is the prognosis good? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think prog prognoses for personality disorders are all good if you're with an appropriate clinician. So now if you're not with the right clinician, then I would say your prognosis is terrible because uh, if clinicians don't understand personality disorders very well, then uh, at the very least, they're going to be ineffective. And at worst, they're just they're going to be actually abusive to you because they're they're going to not know what's happening. Plenty of people with borderline and narcissistic personality disorder have been to therapists that had no idea what they were doing. And the therapy was actually harmful to them, or at the very least, like I said, ineffective. So the prognosis is pretty good. Uh, because no, so, so there's a lot of things that have to be present. One is that with any personality disorder, the, the client has to be at least kind of open to the notion that they have a problem. And like I said earlier, when you have a personality disorder, you tend not to think you have a problem. You tend to think it's everyone else's issue. Uh, so becoming self-aware can be difficult for a lot of personality disordered people. So if, that, if the person is open enough to at least asking the question of, hmm, maybe my perceptions aren't rational, and maybe this therapist can help me with that. So that has to be present, and that's not always present in everyone. The other thing, again, like I said, you have to be with a specialist, someone who understands personality disorders, and that one in particular, because treating borderline is very different from treating obsessive-compulsive personality disorder. There's some overlap for sure. Um, the way it's treated is to heal from traumas and to become self-aware. That's that those are my two principles that I follow and now becoming self-aware can be a very complicated process. It can involve cognitive therapy, narrative therapy, 
Um, and healing can be very complicated. It can be um, attachment healing. It can be behavioral therapy. So there's a lot of different things that can play into building self-awareness and, and healing from one's past. But, but that's the general treatment that I would follow and that I think is evidence-based. All right, let's go into another email. All right, this next email is from anonymous patron in British Columbia. She writes, I have a thing where I get anxious or worried about accidentally doing something harmful. Some examples, if my boyfriend is pumping gas and I'm in the passenger seat, I prefer that he takes the car keys with him so that I don't accidentally grab them and start the car while he's filling the tank. Or if I'm holding a baby, I feel like I might forget I'm holding the baby and I will drop it. Any insight into why these thoughts happen when I know not to do these things? Why do I worry that I might? Do other, pe- do other people do this too? By the way, I do have OCD and generalized anxiety that comes and goes. End of email. Yeah, so this is a classic anxious symptom. And I hope that you understand that you have a classic case of anxiety. Um, it's a very, very frequent a- anxious uh, experience where people will have these exact fears. Other fears you will hear that people have is they worry that if they are walking across a bridge that they are going to suddenly have the urge to jump off the bridge and then they will jump off the bridge. And so the person will avoid walking over bridge because they're afraid that they might jump off. Even though the person has no impulse to jump off the bridge and no impulse to kill themselves, there's just this general worry. Now, you say that you have OCD and generalized anxiety. It could be conceptualized as definitely a um, part of either one of them. There's, there's a lot of overlap between OCD and generalized anxiety, by the way. So you could consider it like an obsession that you are having. You could also consider it a part of your generalized anxiety in that you have a lot of worries, and this is one of them. The way to look at this is that uh, for generalized anxiety or OCD, the biologically speaking, you could say uh, people just have completely irrational worries that are very dominant in their minds. So for someone with anxiety, they might say, um, you know, I'm terrified that when I fall asleep, my heart is going to stop. Or I'm terrified that I, if I'm driving my car, I will... Um, you know, a pothole will suddenly, you know, I, I won't see a pothole and I'll hit the pothole and I'll kill everyone in the car. Or I'm terrified that if I go to a movie and I'm sitting in the middle of the aisle, that suddenly I'll have to vomit and I won't be able to get to the aisle and to the bathroom fast enough to vomit. Now, most people will be like, well, why would you worry about that? I mean, when's the last time you vomited at the movie theater? The person would be like, well, I've, I've never vomited at the movie theater. Um, and then the second question would be like, well, even if you did vomit in a movie theater, it's not your fault. I mean, sure, it's embarrassing, but what's the big deal? So these are worries that uh, are irrational, but that's why this we have a label for it. It's, it's, it's a condition that people have, a disorder. And there are plenty of people who have anxieties of if they're holding a baby – they're worried they're going to forget and they're going to they're going to drop it or they might even worry that they might have an impulse to throw the baby against the wall even though they would never want to do that so essentially uh, and and people will worry sometimes that they're psychopaths or something there's something wrong with me that i have these worries no uh, in all likelihood if you're you know the way you're framing it and i'm a patron it's a part of normal anxiety which is uh, essentially the way to look at it is None of us know exactly what we're going to want to do in the future, right? None of us know exactly how our minds are going to operate into the future. We can all point into the future and say like, or we can point to the past and say like, well, I did a weird thing in that moment that I, did, I wouldn't have done normally. Um, like you're in a social situation and um, you say an off-color joke. And you think, why did I say that terrible joke? Like, I don't normally say that sort of thing. And I, I just had this impulse and I said the dumb joke and I regret it. So in that moment, uh, for most people who don't have anxiety, they're just like, well, you know, it probably won't happen again. But if it happens again, it's not the end of the world. 
Well, for people with anxiety, they will overemphasize that inability to predict their future behavior, and they will say, like, "Well, what if I do that? What what if I get suddenly get motivated to do this? What?" If, and the the secondary irrational thought is, and something really terrible will happen if I if I take that action. Now, obviously, jumping off a bridge it would be terrible, or you know. Uh, starting the car and driving away while your boyfriend is pumping gas it's not terrible terrible but it's not safe it's throwing you know dropping a baby is pretty terrible so there are some rational uh, conclusions there about what if you did that but it's irrational to believe that at some point you'll just suddenly have this urge to do something that you've never had an urge to do before that's so it's this anticipatory anxiety about like well what if i just suddenly have this weird urge all of a sudden and what if it happens? Because, you know, it's possible. It's possible that if you're holding a baby, you'll forget you're holding it and you'll drop it. It's, it, it let's say it's 0.001% chance. But when you have generalized anxiety or OCD, those 0.001% chances become like 50% chances in your brain. That's the irrational part. The chance becomes greatly exaggerated. Um, and the outcome becomes greatly worried about, like vomiting at a movie theater. It's like, you know, my world would end if I vomited in the movie theater. Everyone would be looking at me and someone would have to clean up. They might even have to turn off the movie for a cleaning crew to come in and clean it up. Now, for most people, they'd be like, well, that would suck and I don't want that to happen. But, you know, what are you going to do if you're puke in the middle of the theater? It'll be embarrassing, but I'll get over it. But for people with anxiety, they make a mountain out of a molehill and they're just like you know, constantly terrified of that happening, even though the chance of it happening is very slim. And even if it did happen, it wouldn't be that bad. So that's the plague of generalized anxiety or OCD is that it just completely overemphasizes these issues. So anonymous patron from BC, yes, this is a very common anxiety manifestation. All right. Is that the end of the episode? No, let's go into one more rapid fire. All right, this next email is from someone referring to themselves as Touch Starved in Kitsap County. So Kitsap County is near Seattle, and they're saying, I'm touched, touch starved, so they're starving for touch. They write, I just finished the cuddling episode and have a question on the topic. So just chime in here. I did an episode, I don't know, about six months ago talking about cuddling, and there's a, a guy in Seattle who came on the podcast and talked about how uh, he has a cuddling center downtown Seattle and um, how we're touch deprived as Americans and that um, we need more of it. So there, we need to find ways of getting it and we need non-stigmatized way. So they go on to say, you know, I just finished the cuddling episode and I have a question about the topic. I've had friends in the past back in high school and college with whom entirely platonic cuddling and handholding were part of our regular interactions. That was some time ago, though. These days, I live elsewhere, and I have friend groups who, with whom I've grown close with over the past two years. I would like to make it known that I'm open to platonic physical affection for any of them that would be similarly open, but I am unsure how best to broach the subject in a way that doesn't make it seem weird or creepy for doing so. I'm sincerely not looking for anything other than friendly physical contact. But as you know, our society sends the overall message that touch is reserved only for family or sexual partners, even more so when at least one of the touch recipients is a man. For the record, I'm non-binary, but my but I have a male body. Do you have any recommendations in this regard? End of email. Yeah. So just touching on, if you excuse the pun, on one of your points is that uh, generally speaking in America, the United States, Touch is pathologized and made to seem to be creepy uh, for everyone, particularly for men. So if a woman said something like, uh, I, I need more touch in my life, could we cuddle? You know, if, if one of your women friends came to you and said, I feel like I just need to cuddle. I just need uh, more cuddling in my life. Um, one, that would be a very weird thing to do given our, our touch phobic society. Uh, but it would be received better than if one of your male friends came to you and said, I want platonic cuddling with you. It would be much more likely that the man would be seen as a creep 
and as looking for sex than the woman. So, uh, and maybe it's true that it's more likely, but our fears of that are overblown. And we live in a society that not only prevents touch from happening, but like stigmatizes asking for touch. Yet we have a lot of needs as human beings. We have a need for water, for food, for sleep. And most of these needs, we tend to not pathologize. If someone is thirsty and they want water, we tend to say, okay, if you want water, ask for it. We're not going to stigmatize you. We have need for touch. Infants literally will die sometimes if they're not given enough touch. Humans need touch. And so when someone asks for more touch, it is seen as weird, creepy, as predatory, as disgusting in a lot of ways, and unwelcomed. Now, I'm not saying everyone is supposed to welcome with open arms someone who says that they want more touch in their life, but at the very least, when someone asks, they shouldn't be stigmatized in in the same way that no one should be stigmatized for asking for a glass of water. And it's getting worse is the problem. We are not we are progressing as a society in a lot of ways, but we are not progressing in a, as a society when it comes to touch. I predict in 50, you know, 50 years, we'll be worse off when it comes to touching. It's just getting more and more pathologized to hug, to um, touch, to cuddle. Uh, when I was young, in the second grade, I remember there was a lot of touching going on between the kids. Now, some of you might be thinking, but hey, you know, you can't have kids touching each other at school. Some kids will be victimized. Yeah, absolutely. And we need to take a look at that for sure. But that doesn't mean we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because victimization does happen, and it does happen, doesn't mean that we throw out touch altogether. It'd be like saying, well, you know, some people can drown if they drink too much water. Or sometimes water can be poisoned. Okay, yeah, sometimes that can happen. But that doesn't mean we deny water to everybody, does it? But that's what we're doing in our society. We are looking at isolated rare incidents that do happen of touch leading to victimization. And we are saying, we're just going to have no touch. And any question about touch, any request for touch is seen as suspect and predatory. That's like looking at any glass of water as poisoned or going to kill you. No, some glasses of water might kill you. Most glasses of water are not going to kill you. Asking for a glass of water is a rational thing to do. Some touch is going to be be victimization. But most touch is not victimization, and asking for touch should not be assumed to, to be a creepy thing. Drives me crazy. We have a culture where we have completely normalized people going, ew, he wanted to touch me, ew. That man is a professional cuddler, ew. It is troubling. We live in an adolescent society when it comes to touch. It is, um, it is bothersome. In my estimation, our normal state, which is hard to know given how, how askew we are from our natural state, I would suspect that, you know, in our ancient history, when we didn't have this stupid culture about touch, I would estimate that children were touched probably a total of like 10% of the time as children. You know, like a seven-year-old would be in, you just look at other primates and you look at how often they touch each other. Uh, I suspect that we, we were the same and, and we are the same. We have the same amount of need for touch. And the reason why things are getting worse is because everyone is isolated in their offices and working with people that they don't know that well and they can't touch. You know, back in the old days, you 99.9% of the time, you were in close proximity to your kin, to your family and your close friends, people that you grew up touching, people that you trust, people that you, that you know you can ask for touch and, and that you'll, you'll be touched. You know, in our society now, 99.9% of the people you come into contact with outside of a pandemic, of course, are strangers. And so you don't know if you can trust them and people don't know if they can trust you. So 
So anyway, you're asking, you know, do, you, do I have any recommendations? Well, I'm really glad that you're wise enough to respect your own needs. So you're doing you're doing way better than the average person. Just recognizing, look, I have a need for touch. So you're so you're in, definitely in the right direction. Uh, what do we do? Well, I don't know. It's hard because uh, a set, best case scenario, you find a set of three to five friends whom you know you can cuddle with and touch in a platonic manner or even in a sexual manner. You know, it's fine, but obviously platonic is something you're looking for. And you have that routine. And you, for example, you go over to your male friend's house and you, you're watching a movie and the two of you cuddle, even though you're not, you're not sexually attracted to each other. Or you have really long hugs with friends when you see them every time. Or you have a cuddle party of five people where you just relax and cuddle and listen to music or something. Um, or uh, with your family members, you're able to sit in very close proximity, touching, um, while you watch a movie or something. You know, uh, How do you get there? You know, I don't know, because you have to find people who are willing to do it. And it's not one of those things where you can just throw it out there and people will uh, jump on the opportunity because even though they might really want to, they might feel so much stigma and so much fear that they'll just say, nah, it's just, it's just easier not to do it. Now, you can also, you're in Kitsap County. You could travel to Seattle and go to that cuddle center that's in downtown. It was in the International District. So a short ferry ride away would bring you there, and you could you know travel out there twice a week and get some of your cuddle needs met that way. But if I was to start somewhere, touch starved in Kitsap County, is long hugs. Most people are open to hugging people. And I find that if you, you know, have a lingering hug, or you can even ask for permission to be like, hey, um, could we hug a little longer than normal because I feel touch-deprived? <laughs> you know, you could say that. Now, of course, we're in a pandemic right now, so everything's different. So a lot of us have to wait. <laughs> and I worry about all of us regarding this respect. I particularly worry about people who live alone. It's like, what are you going to do? There's like nothing you can do, right? Now, what some people are doing is they are developing these little, I can't remember what they're calling them, little um, cube, little, I don't know, little pandemic circles, if you will, where um, say three people live alone, but they all agree to quarantine themselves from other people, you know, so that they don't get infected. And then those three, those three people will hang out in each other's homes and cuddle. So you can do that. And I recommend you strive for that. If you can trust your, you know, people to not be infected and to be responsible. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't have a lot of optimism and absolutely do what you can. Sometimes it just means that you just find one person that you're able to do that with. But a lot of times the only answer is you find a romantic partner that you can do that with because romantic partners Usually, it's uh, completely customary and comfortable to, to cuddle and to have physical touch. It's not always the case. There are plenty of people who aren't. But So sometimes our best course of action is to find a romantic partner that we can cuddle with. But, of course, it would be better if we could have more people. Anyway. All right. Well, I think I talked for long enough. Uh, I will end it there. Everyone out there, please take care of yourself. Let me know what you think. And take care of other people because we all deserve it. We really, really do.